All right. And we are going live on Facebook. All right. And we are live on one second. Let me just confirm. I believe, but I want to double check that we are live on Facebook. Welcome everyone, near and far. This is this is the Torah in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic interpretation. Uh, this is the final session of our ongoing series with Dr. Gaffney. Thank you everyone who's joined us for these past couple of weeks. And just to, for people who are just joining in, I want to remind you everyone that this is no sooner had the Bible as we know it been canonized than its interpretation became the subject of fierce debate between Jews and the nation Christian church. Centuries later, with the arrival of Islam on the, of, on the scene of Islam, the battle still raged, and now all three major monotheistic religions took part in the polemics. In this course, we will discuss the diverse conceptions of biblical meaning, and we will explore the pivotal role that these early disputes played in the evolution of modern interpretive approaches to the biblical text. In one moment, while I'm just confirming something on the setup, all right. Yep. Things are all good. Um, Dr. Gaffney, I'm happy to hand things over to you. Okay. Thank you. So this is our last session. And I think it's nice that we conclude this session right before Shavuot, Chag Matan Torah. And uh, today we'll uh, try to summarize stuff that we've done before, but also, of course, make a little bit of progress here. So I'm sharing my screen. Okay. Okay, so let's briefly review and then proceed. In the opening session, we discussed the differences between traditional and critical ways of reading the Bible, of interpreting the Bible. And we emphasized that traditional readers always want to think that the Bible is not some ancient text that remains in the past, but rather a living text, a timeless composition that belongs to the present and to the future as well. Having said that, we still need to distinguish between the different modes of interpretations that were common among Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and also the debates that uh, took place between these three camps uh, on, in terms of how to read the Torah. In the opening session, we discussed Jewish readings of the Torah, the way that Jews read the Torah, and we mainly focused on the rabbinic drash. We said that from the rabbinic perspectives for the rabbis, the main concern uh, when reading the Bible, when interpreting the Bible, was to see how we carry out the laws, how we actually fulfill the laws, given that reality changes, circumstances changes, and beyond, besides that, the Bible does not provide us with all the essential information for preserving the mitzvot, and that's why the rabbis were very concerned in trying to meet that goal. In that sense, they're also bringing the Bible from the past to the present, to their time, and the technique, the method the rabbis came up with is known as the drash. Using, when we use the word drash, we mainly refer to this thorough analysis of the rabbis, whether from the school of Rabbi Ishmael or Rabbi Akiva, each one with its own unique method, but they share in common this uh, attempt to read the text very carefully and to derive from the text uh, solutions or answers to any legal questions that come up. The drash is also a method that was used when we read stories in the Torah, and in that realm, it's more about bring, making the text an inspiring and meaningful text for, for readers even uh, centuries later. So that was uh, the rabbinic perspective. Uh, despite the fact that what the rabbis are doing might appear to us as departure from the plain sense of the text, nevertheless, the rabbis still read the text literally, historically. When they read a his, an event or they talk about an episode in the Bible, it's viewed as some event in the past. When they read a law, it's taken literally and not in any other form. Then we proceeded to Christians, uh, Christian reading of the Torah, and we saw that Christians were very much troubled by two elements in the text. First, by the practical implications of keeping so many commandments and so many laws, especially when trying to preach to non-Jews uh, to spread this new religion, but also the need to find some references or allusions to Christianity and particularly to Jesus in the Torah. For that matter, starting in the New Testament and later on in Church Fathers literature, uh, many Christians will try to read the Torah 
as an allegory, as a symbolic text? What do they gain by reading it as allegory? Or sometimes people use the word typology or prefiguration. In, by reading the Torah as an allegory first, they were able to abolish the practical implications of the mitzvot and view them as just symbolic ideas trying to, to preach for certain moral values or ethical values, but not something that needs to be taken literally, but also historical events in the Bible are perceived as some form of prophecies that will actually allude or hint to later uh, uh, Christianity or to Jesus particularly and Christianity in general. So you would read a story in the Bible, the binding of Isaac, and you will say it's really about the crucifixion of Jesus later on. So that's the unique way of uh, at least the prevailing way among Christians to read the Torah. Here we're not talking about a literal understanding, rather as a symbolic presentation of the text. This, these two approaches led very soon to a Jewish-Christian debate, polemic, in terms of how to read the Bible. We saw that in earlier stages, in earlier Jewish sources, Jews did not really uh, address the method, the allegorical method of reading the Bible, it seems like Jews were uh, approaching this issue from a, for an emotional perspective. So if Christians would take a story in the Bible, or particularly if they will take a figure in the Bible and will see that, present that figure as alluding to later Christianity, so Jews will uh, decide to present that same figure in, negative, in a negative way, to portray it in negative, uh, to present it in negative terms uh, in order to uh, fight the Christian way of viewing that figure. So for example, if Christians would read the story of Enoch and say that Enoch eludes or is a form of prophecy for Jesus in the sense that he ascends to heaven, so Jews will say, no, Enoch was a hypocrite or a wicked guy and he died as any other person. Uh, it was only in the medieval period at a later stage where Jews and Christians start talking about the method itself, not an emotional reaction to the way that Christians read the text, but rather a systematic way of treating the way that Christians read, read the Bible. In the medieval period, Jews and Christians uh, discuss very uh, on a methodological level, should the Bible be read literally or as a symbolic text. Later on, the third party joins in Islam. Here too, we discussed Islamic ways of reading the text, and we've done that in two stages. First, we discussed how stories appear, biblical stories, especially stories from the Torah, appear in the Quran. We saw that the Quran often would read the Torah in an anachronistic manner. So stories from the Torah will be told in a way that will resemble, that will become very uh, similar to what will happen later on in Islam. So if we read about Noah struggling with his people, with the generation of his time, preaching and having no success, the story will be told in a way that will uh, make the reader think also about similar experiences that Muhammad was going through. If Abraham needs to escape from Ur Kasdim to Eretz Canaan, readers will feel that this is very similar to what Muhammad will go through when he has to escape from Mecca to Medina. So those similarities are created, but it's not presented as if the Bible is speaking about Muhammad or prophesizing in any way about Muhammad. In that sense, it's closer to the Jewish mode of thinking. And later, uh, Islamic literature, Christians took one step further and they actually tried to find uh, explicit references to Muhammad in the text itself. And they've done that in all sorts of ways. Some of them look a little bit more far-fetched using gimatria, for example, or uh, relying on rabbinic midrashim and giving them a twist. And by doing all those things, Muslims were able to find uh, explicit references to Muhammad or to Islam in the Torah. And then they become more similar in their mindset, trying to look for actual references for Islam in the Torah. What we will do today, we will try to address how did Jews respond to the Islamic ways of reading the Torah. Uh, so it's basically Jewish Islamic or Islamic Jewish polemics in uh, medieval times. What will be there? So to be a little bit more specific, so as I said, while in previous sessions we discussed a how the Quran, that the Quran's anachronistic retelling of biblical stories, and the ways medieval Muslim scholars attempted to find allusions to Muhammad in particular and to Islam in general in the Torah. So in this session we will talk about 
Jewish responses to Islamic readings of the Torah. And we'll do this in two stages. First, in earlier Jewish texts. And later on, we'll talk about medieval or later medieval Jewish sources. When I say earlier texts in this context, obviously I mean post-Islamic composition. So we're not talking as early as the second, third century, what we've done in rabbinic when we spoke about Christianity, but rather texts from the seventh, eighth century, earlier Jewish responses to Islam. And uh, when I talk about later sources, I'm already speaking about 11th, 12th, 13th century compositions. What we will try to see is how did Jews respond to these Islamic ways of reading the Torah. Uh, the first, when we approach earlier Jewish sources, I think we can feel a very similar process to what took place when Jews respond to Christianity. When Jews address the ways that Muslims read the Bible, they often react emotionally and not necessarily in a rational manner. What does that mean? When Jews uh, cannot, uh, see or are exposed to places where Muslims will tell a story in a particular way that will sound meaningful from an Islamic perspective. If Muslims will make certain biblical figures uh, into prophets or will uh, try to read stories in the Bible in a way that will pave the, the way to later Islam, Jews will react emotionally in the sense that they will try to view those same figures in a negative way. They will try to uh, minimize the role of, or of certain figures or minimize the importance of so certain stories that were significant from Islamic perspective. They're not really discussing the ways that Muslims read the story. It's more reacting to particular uh, uh, interpretations that were common in Islam. I wanna uh, try to demonstrate this in the first part of the session and later on we'll move on to later medieval sources and then we will see that the discussion becomes more theoretical. Okay, so let's start with one very good example. We're gonna read now the story, a very important story in the Torah, the story when Hagar, the uh, uh, woman slave of uh, Abraham and Ishmael, her son are being uh, expelled from Abraham's house, from Abraham's house. And what we will wanna see here, how the story was told in earlier Jewish sources. How did Jews read that story in earlier times? And we will see in a very clear way that they're react, reacting to the Islamic way of reading that story and in a very emotional manner. So first, what we need to do is read uh, the story itself from the Torah. Here I have it in an English translation. And as you see, I uh, put in bold letters some words that will become important for us. So we start by reading the story itself. And then I want to uh, point out a few interesting, uh, to, point, to put my finger on a few uh, specific examples that indicate very clearly how Jews react to Islamic ways of reading the story. All right. If no okay. one will read, I will. Yeah. Okay. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Avraham, laughing. So she said to Avraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Avraham on account of his son. But God said to Avraham, be not displeased because of the, the, the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she told you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offering, your offspring. So okay, Abraham still have a lot to go, so continue. Yeah. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Okay, a little more. That's... Okay, then... then she... Then she went down and sat opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and he saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay, so I'm sure you're all familiar with this story. You read this numerous times. And what we will try to do now is see how this story was interpreted in Jewish sources post 
post-Islamic Jewish sources. And I think it will become very, very clear, very evident that Jews were familiar with the way that Muslim was reading some stories of that sort, and they were reacting to that. What sources can be used for that purpose? So we will start with re by reading uh, an Aramaic translation of uh, this passage of this chapter. And I'm referring to the Aramaic translation known as Pseudo Jonathan. I need to emphasize that Pseudo Jonathan, although has very uh, early or origins, perhaps BCE, but in its current form, it's clear that the, at least the final touches on this, uh, uh, this translations were only taken post Islam. And also in this particular case, it's very clear, it's very evident that the author of this translation, when translating this passage, was already familiar with Islam. Once we will uh, make that clear, once I can uh, prove that the text, the Aramaic translation of this text is familiar with Islam, I want to point how the story is being translated in, in this po in Jewish post-Islamic text and try to learn or derive something more general from this type of translation. So how do we know that the Aramaic translation of Pseudo-Jonathan was composed post-Islam? So there's one clear indication for that. At the very last verse that Kylie just read, it points out that Ishmael lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife from, from uh, the land of Egypt. In the Torah, it does not say in any way what was the name of that wife, and we don't know anything about her biography, but in the Aramaic translation, and now I'm switching, going all the way to the end, you will see in verse 21, the last verse of this passage, it says about Ishmael, he dwelt in the desert of Paran and took as wife Adisha, but he divorced her and his mother took Fatima as wife for him from the land of Egypt. Anybody who's familiar with the history of Islam and particularly with the biography of Muhammad knows that Aisha and Fatima were two important uh, figures in the life of, of uh, Muhammad. And therefore it's clear that these names were not picked randomly, but rather being familiar with Islam. So the choices of these two names clearly indicate that what the author has in mind when he's trying to translate this passage is already to think of Ishmael as a representative of later Islam. Having said that, we can see that the story is being translated in a very negative way, meaning the description of Ishmael and Hagar, his mother in this story, will become a lot more negative uh, than the way it's being told in the Torah. And I think this demonstrates how Jews reacted to the way that Muslims read this story. Let's demonstrate using a few verses and we can really find a lot more than what I brought here. So I wanna talk about a few words that uh, we saw in the original text and then we will see how those were translated. In the Torah itself, it does not give us much information. What was wrong with Ishmael's behavior? The only word that is being told in the Torah uh, that Ishmael was laughing. In Hebrew, it says, Metzachek. Nevertheless, Sarah decides to react uh, in a very dramatic manner. She says, this kid needs to be uh, taken away from our house. He shall not be here with my son, Isaac. And this is being done against the will of Abraham. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on the account of his son. And it's only because God tells him, you should listen to what your wife is saying. Abraham decides, that he will do indeed, uh, he will indeed send Ishmael away from his house, still being promised that he will become a great nation. Nation, the son of the slave woman will also become a nation because he's your offspring. When you turn to the translation, you see a lot more information added here. For example, uh, when we read about Ishmael's behavior, I'm reading verse number nine, Sarah saw, uh, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she bore to Abraham, sporting with an idol and bowing down to him. Suddenly, it's not just Metzachek, but it's clearly associating Ishmael with idolatry. Uh, later on, in the, she, tells, she speaks to Abraham, and she said to Abraham, cast this uh, maiden servant and her son, for it is not possible that the son of this maiden servant shall inherit with my son, and they make an make war with Isaac. This idea of making war with Isaac is not something that is specified in the text. But even more clearly, later on, but the matter was very distressing in Abraham's eyes on the account of his son Ishmael, who had practiced idolatry. When you read the Torah itself, what does 
what do you what impression do we get when we when the Torah says Vayera hadavar meod Abraham al odot bno Abraham was very unhappy with what was going on. Plain sense, it's clear. Abraham was very unhappy about needing to send Ishmael away from his home. He's actually not understanding why is there a need to get rid of him. Why do we need to throw him out of the house? But in the translation, that is not the point. Abraham understands that the kid needs to be thrown away from the house. He's only upset about his son's behavior, about the fact that his son is practicing idolatry. We're making more progress. The Lord says to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy who has abandoned the training you have given him. So it's again, it's not about the fact that he needs to get rid of Abraham, of Ishmael. It's more about Abraham being upset about the ways that his son, uh, the path his son took. And he also adds, you should pay attention to all that Sarah will say to you, for she is a prophet. So she's doing everything through uh, prophecy. It's not her own ideas. It's not her own uh, emotions, but it's something that she receives via prophecy. Uh, all of these already indicate that there's something very different ongoing on. The way to, the decision to portray Ishmael as an idol worshiper, the decision to say that Abraham really did not want to have Ishmael in his house, and he was fine with getting rid of him. He was only upset about the place where his son was emphasizing the fact that whatever Sarah was saying is supported by prophecy is, I think, a very clear indication that the text, this Aramaic translation, is going out of its way to describe, to depict Ishmael and his mother in most negative terms possible. Uh, even when the Torah uh, just emphasizes that Abraham was comforted that his son will become a nation, as you see in verse number 13, I will make me a nation, in the translation, he adds, and I will make him nations of robbers. Again, something that is not mentioned in the text itself. Rather than being a promise, a blessing, here it's presenting as a form of a curse almost. Your son, he's your son, so I'll make him into a nation. But what sort of nation? Nation of robbers. When we proceed, Hagar is being sent away from Abraham's home. You read before, uh, Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread, uh, skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Be'er Sheva. The translation has something to add both when it comes to the uh, verb or the expression, send her away, and also with regarding to her uh, wandering around. Look how the translation is uh, doing this. Here you see all these words were put in italics here in the English translations of Surah Jonathan, so it's very easy to notice that. Uh, so you see among other stuff, uh, when he sends it away, Hagar away, he says, he sent it away with a bill of divorce. He was, she wasn't just take, sent away from his house. Abraham made clear he has nothing to do with that woman anymore, any longer. She goes to the desert and when she is, uh, what the Torah says, Vatelech Vateta is translated here. She was going astray after idolatry. So she's not losing her way in a, in a, from a geographical perspective, but rather in a spiritual manner. Finally, I'm moving back to the text itself. Uh, in the Torah, Vaishma Elohim El Kol And God heard the voice of the boy. So God feels bad for this crying baby or little kid thrown in the desert without water, and God saves him. In the translation, he emphasizes precisely the opposite. He reads, uh, I'll just emphasize that, the voice of the child was heard before the Lord because of the merit of Abraham. So it's not because of the son. It's not that God does not really listen to the voice of the son. He's listening to Abraham's prayer. He's worrying about Abraham losing his son. And the kid is being saved only because of Abraham's deeds because of the merit of Abraham. And we can find more and more of that stuff in this passage. When you try to summarize this, what can we learn from this type of translation? And I think it demonstrates something very clear. When Jews uh, read and became familiar with passages that were meaningful for Islam, and I don't need to tell you, the stories about Ishmael will become very important for Islam because Ishmael is the forefather 
of all Muslims, of all Arabs, future Muslims. In Islam, Ishmael is even presented as a prophet. He's not just the son of Abraham, of Ibrahim, but Ismail, Ishmael, is actually a prophet in the Quran. So when Muslims read the stories, read these stories, and presented the stories in a way that will become meaningful or, or pave the way for later developments in Islam, Jews had to react. And what we see here is in a sense, a very emotional type of reaction because Jews could have taken a whole different path. They could have said, what does the biblical Ishmael have, any, have to do with later Islam, with Muhammad, with uh, this new religion? They could have separated between the two. They could have said, the Torah is speaking about Ishmael and Ishmael was sent away from Abraham's home. Eventually, he will even reunite with the family. He will come back and take part in the burial process of Abraham in the Torah. So there was no need to present him in such negative manner. He could have been portrayed as the son that had to leave the home, period. But it's clear that this uh, extreme emotional reaction and this uh, extreme tendency to portray him in negative terms was a reaction to Islam. If Muslims want to make him into their hero, if they want to make him into a prophet, so we'll take the opposite path. We'll present him as a worship, as an idol worshiper, a nation of robbers that had to be sent away and have nothing to do with the people of Israel or with Abraham's family uh, later on. I think it's a very emotional type of response and it kind of resembles what we saw in early Jewish responses to Christianity. Not a very sophisticated, rational way of treating the ways that we, the Christians read the stories, but a very emotional type of reaction. If Enoch becomes a figure that symbolizes Jesus, we have to make him look bad. If Malkitzedek will become a crucial figure for later Christianity, so Jews will present him as a sinner. All these type of reactions were very emotional and not really addressing the question itself. How should one read the Bible? And is there justification in reading the Bible in a way that... Uh, paves the way for later developments in Islam. Another example, a brief example for this could also be found in Midrash uh, Shmot Rabbah, Exodus Rabbah. Again, I need to emphasize Midrash Shmot Rabbah in contrast to uh, Genesis Rabbah, to Bereshit Rabbah, or to Vayikra Rabbah, Leviticus Rabbah. This Midrash is actually a late composition. And here too, I think it's very clear that the Midrash is reacting to Islam in the way the story is being told. Uh, this is the Midrash speaking about Abraham sending Hagar and Ishmael away from his home. And uh, here too, the Midrash will make it very clear. Abraham had no regrets that he had to send, no bad feelings about sending Ishmael from his house. He understood that was the right thing to do because he understood where Ishmael is coming from and what will happen from him later on. Kyla, you wanna read a little more? All right, then why he hath, he that spareth the rod hateth his son? Teach you that anyone who refrains from chastising his son causes him to fall into evil ways and thus comes to hate him. This is what we find in the case of Ishmael who behaved wickedly before Abraham his father, but he did not chastise him with the result that he fell into evil ways so that he despised him and cast him forth empty handed from his house. And he continues. Presently we read. And Abraham rose up to early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and sent her away to teach you that he hated Ishmael because of his evil ways and sent him together with his mother Hagar away empty handed and expelled him from his house on this account. For otherwise, do you really think that Abraham, of whom it is written, and Abraham was very rich in cattle, could send away his wife and his son from his house empty handed without clothes or means of a livelihood? But this is to teach you that when Ishmael became depraved, he ceased to think about him. Okay, so I think this is a very, uh, very dramatic change from the story in the Torah to the story to the way it's presented in the Midrash. A radical difference in the Torah. Abraham, you can imagine Abraham crying when Ishmael is leaving the house. No, he's upset with this. He's really having a hard time coping with this decision, and it's only because God instructs him to send Ishmael from his house he's doing that. But here in the Midrash. It's only the opposite. Abraham hates Ishmael. He hates Hagar, his mother, and he's sending them in a way with no food, empty-handed to the desert, knowing what will happen to them there. He basically uh, is expecting them to die somewhere in the desert. What a drastic shift 
from the story in the Torah to the Midrash. And here too, I think it's a very clear uh, indication that Jews are reacting to the way that, ma that Muslims read the stories. If Muslims want to make Ishmael into their hero, into a prophet, so we need to make clear uh, Ishmael was the wicked guy, was the sinner, was an idol worshiper, and he was sent to his death in a sense. And it was only because of the merit of Abraham that God eventually decides to save him. This is, these are just two examples. Most of rabbinic literature is before Islam, but those sources that survived from the post-Islamic period clearly indicate how Jews initially react to these stories. But in a similar manner to what we saw in Christianity, the same thing will happen also in Jewish sources. As we move on in time, Jews will speak a little bit more uh, about the method itself. They'll, they'll react to the, to the Islamic way of reading the text in a rational manner, not so emotional. And they will address the ways that Muslims use the stories, especially when it comes to those later Islamic readings of the text where Muslims were trying to detect or to find explicit references to Islam or to Muhammad, their Jews are not going to react emotionally, but they will try to argue with the method, with the method itself. They will try to show that what, Christian, what Muslims were doing is not a, uh, appropriate from a mythological perspective. This is not the way the Bible needs to be read. Uh, for that purpose, I'm moving on to the next example, and that's uh, what I'm writing here, Jewish responses in medieval sources and later medieval sources. And I want to remind you briefly of the texts that we saw that Muslims were using, later Islamic uh, scholars were using uh, as sources, as references to Muhammad in the Torah. And we will see how Jews responded to those texts in uh, later times. So I'm reminding you the first source we mentioned in previous session, Genesis 17, or in English, uh, I will make him, meaning Ishmael, fruitful and he will greatly exceed, uh, I will greatly uh, increase his numbers and I will make him into a great nation. I put in bold letters the bimod meod and the words because if you recall, I'm not going to test you on this, but if you recall, we saw that Muslims found in both of these expressions uh, references or hints to Muhammad himself. How come? So you remember we were using back then Jew, Jews such as Samuel al-Maghrabi, a Jewish convert to Islam. Uh, what he was emphasizing that if you compute the numerical value of these letters, meaning if you follow the gimatria, you will see that both Bimod Meod and Legoi Gadol make 92. And 92 is also the gematria of no other than Muhammad. Mem Chet Mem Dalet is Muhammad, and therefore they claim Muhammad is found in the Torah. That was one example we saw. The second example did not involve gematria, but rather interpretation, ordinary interpretation. And this is moving to Deuteronomy Yudchet Yudchet Sefer Varim. A prophet I will raise up for them from among their brothers like you. We saw that here, Muslims not relying on Gimatria said that if the Torah is referring to a future prophet that will raise not from the Israelites themselves, but rather from one of their brothers, brethren, this must be alluding to the brother of Yitzchak, which is Ishmael, meaning that the future prophet that Moshe is speaking about is not anybody from the Israeli nation, but rather an outsider, somebody like Muhammad. Finally, in the last source that we saw yesterday, uh, yesterday in the previous session, uh, this is from the beginning of Ezot Abracha, Parashat Ezot Abracha, and this was a more sophisticated type of proof that we spoke about. In the Torah, it says as follows, Moshe is blessing the people of Israel, starting with the following words, Vayomar, Moshe is saying, the Lord came from Sinai, dawned from Seir upon us, and shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. We, were, we mentioned back then that there was a, something troubling with this verse for uh, Chazal already. Chazal were troubled. Why is, there, uh, why is the Torah here? while referring to the story of the Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, why is the Torah referring to three locations where the Torah is being given? 
Sinai, Sa'ir, and Paran. We saw that there's an ancient legend that tried to explain that by saying that actually there were numerous revelations because God did not only offer the Torah to the people of Israel, but he actually offered it first to other nations. He came to uh, descendants of Esav, Seir, but they refused. He came to the descendants of Ishmael, but they also refused. They said, we can't live with some of the ideas that the Torah presents. And it's only the people of Israel who are willing to accept this Torah. Uh, that was an ancient Jewish tradition, but we saw that Muslims, again, we refer to the writings of Samuel al-Magabi, they said, no, this is actually a very clear uh, illusion, or maybe we can call it a form of prophecy to the later developments of religion in the world. So religion will start with Sinai, meaning with Judaism, with the Hadut, but that's just the first step. But eventually Judaism will be replaced by Seir, Seir, Edom, clear uh, reference or a clear allusion to uh, Christianity. But later on, final step, uh, destination will be Har Paran. Har Paran is where Ishmael dwells, meaning this is referring to Islam. So Muslims came and said, this uh, verse in Parashat Yasot is a brief uh, description of what will happen later on, brief description or sketch of later developments in the world, in the religious world indicating that Islam will be the final religion that is out there to stay. These are three examples how Muslims were trying to find Islam in Muhammad, particularly in the Torah. Well, Jews were familiar with these things, with these type of proofs as well. And what we will do now is we're turning on, we're not gonna have time to uh, get into numerous writers, but there are numerous Jewish writers such as Saadia Gaon, Ibn Ezra, and many, many others who address these types of proofs you just have to have uh, the sensitivity to look for those kind of uh, reactions in their commentaries. We will not look into Sa'ad Yagon or Ibn Ezra. We will only focus on one Jewish famous writer, and I'm referring to Maimonides, and we will see how Maimonides treats these types of proofs. And it's very clear that here the response is much more sophisticated and rational. He's not just reacting emotionally, but he's trying to uh, convince his opponents that it really doesn't make sense to read the Torah in such a matter on a methodological level. The text we're going to be using for this purpose is Maimonides' letter to the community of Yemen. It's called in Hebrew, but it's actually a text composed in Arabic. The community in Yemen were troubled, were, uh, were approached by Islamic figures were trying to convert them to Islam and they're approaching Ram, the Ram, Rambam and asking them if he can give them some responses how to deal with those type of uh, attacks or attempts to convince them to, to convert. Among other people, they mentioned to Maimonides, uh, somebody similar or maybe more particularly as like uh, Samuel al-Maghabi, meaning a Jewish convert who provided all those verses from the Torah, trying to convince them that the Torah itself was familiar and prophesizing about Muhammad and about Islam, and therefore uh, they must abandon their Jude Jewish tradition and make the obvious step towards Islam. And this is what Maimonides answers to them. I'll read a little bit and then I'll uh, let you continue. You mentioned, says Maimonides to the people of Yemen, that the apostate has misled people to believe that bimod meod, that the words bimod meod, is the madman. Wow, Maimonides is referring to uh, Muhammad as the madman. In Hebrew, it's Hameshugah or Hamajnun as the crazy guy. So Rambam is writing to the community of Yemen and he's, he's uh, telling them, I heard that this guy was trying to convince you that Bimod Meod is actually referring to this uh, Islamic prophet. Or that in the same way, he appeared from Mount Paran, Ophia Mount Paran alludes to him. Or similarly, that a prophet from among your own people refers to him. Or likewise, his promise to Ishmael, I will make him into, I will make him of him a great nation. And now Maimonides is going to reject proof after one verse after the other, uh, and why these verses have nothing to do with Islam. Let's see how he does that. Before that, Maimonides says, these arguments have been rehearsed so often that they have become nauseating. It's not enough to declare that they are altogether feeble. An aid to cite them as proof is ridiculous and absurd in the extreme. Don't think, it's not even, it's not just not convincing, it's almost stupid 
It's, it's idiotic. Neither the untutored multitudes nor the apostates themselves who delude others with them believe in them and, or entertain any illusions about them. Their sole purpose in citing these verses and to win favor in the eyes of the Gentiles by demonstrating that they believe the statements of the Quran that Muhammad was mentioned in the Torah. So Maimonides is actually arguing that even the, those Jews who converted to Islam that were relying on these verses, they themselves didn't take this so seriously. They were only trying to impress their fellow Muslims that they found sources or proofs from the Torah for, in the, for Islam. But they themselves know this is totally ridiculous. There's nothing convincing about this. But the Muslims themselves do not accept these arguments. They do not admit nor cite them because they are manifestly fallacious. It's not really the case. Muslims did quote these verses, not even so rarely. But Maimonides is going out of his way to show there's nothing serious about this. And why? So we'll do, we'll see some of Maimonides' responses. The great, the phrase, a great nation. Yes, you. The phrase, a great nation, implies neither prophecy nor a law, but merely large numbers and no more. Just as he says of the idolaters, nations greater and more numerous than you from Deuteronomy. Similarly, okay, so he starts by saying, le goigador is not saying anything about a particular figure, and it's not saying anything about something spiritual about this nation. It's only talking about something about the statistics. It's just saying that Ishmael will become a large nation, numbers-wise. It has nothing to do with a prophet emerging from among them or from them becoming a superior religion law in any way. Similarly, similarly, the, pra the phrase bimeod meod signifies, simply signifies exceedingly. If the allusion in the phrase were intended to that one in that, meaning to Muhammad, it would read, and I shall bless him bimeod meod, so that ever who likes to hang on a spider's web might then declare it means, I shall bless him that one may be his seed. But since bimeod meod follows, I will make him numerous, it can only denote an extravagant increase in numbers. Okay, so my marriage is again emphasizes legoi gadol and bimeod meod is just about numbers. It's just about the size of the nation. It doesn't talk about an individual and it's not trying to say anything about a future prophet that will come from that nation. If that was the case, the Torah should have said, I will bless him, bimod meod. And then you could say it's referring to a particular individual. But since it's just saying, referring to the nation in general, it cannot be understood, but rather speaking about the nation as a whole and talking about their numbers. But Maimonides does not even stop there. And here he adds something that I think looks a little bit amusing when you read it at first, but Maimonides is actually uh, very uh, uh, concrete when he's saying that. It is also important that you know. Yes. Want to go on? It is also important that you know that the name of the prophet that the Ishmaelites think is written in the Torah, to which the apostates cling, is not um, Muhammad. Muhammad, but Ahmad. But Ahmad. So it is explicitly stated. They find him mentioned in the Torah in the Gospels. His name is Ahmad. The numerical value of the Me'od Me'od is not equal to this name, which is supposed to be written. Okay, so now what Maimonides is saying, again, it's at first sight sounded to me amusing. Maimonides is saying to, his, uh, to the Yemenites, Muslims are trying to convince you that Me'od Me'od is the gematria of the Islamic prophet, but the gematria doesn't really work because their prophet is not really called Muhammad, it, he's actually called Ahmad, not Mem Chet Mem Dalet, but rather Aleph Chet Mem Dalet. And if that's the case, the Gematria falls apart. It's not 92 anymore, it's a lot less than that. You replace the Mem with an Aleph, you lose 39. That's what Maimonides is saying, and therefore he says your Gematria is not really something they can rely on. At first sight, it sounded to me what Maimonides is telling his Muslim figures how they should name their prophet. If they call him Muhammad, is he telling them that their name, his name is not Muhammad, but rather Ahmad? But this is not the case. Maimonides is actually very uh, concrete about what he said here. He's, he's very clever. Because the place, and this is something from, uh, not from the, previous, from the previous session, we saw that Muslims attempted to find Muhammad in the Torah, relying on a particular verse in the Quran. There are a few places that the Quran says that the Islamic prophet will appear in the Torah, not indicating where. But we saw that there were all those verses in the Quran that gave uh, this inspiration that inspired Muslims to look for Muhammad in the Torah. 
in the surah, in the chapter in the Quran, where this uh, is found, this, the Quran actually says that Ahmad is found in the Torah. It does not say Muhammad. And this is what Maimonides is quoting. He's quoting, so it is explicitly stated, they find a mention in the Torah and the Gospels. This is a quote from the Quran. Rambam, Maimonides, is quoting a verse from the Quran, from one of the surahs in the Quran. And he's telling his Muslim, his, he's speaking about these Muslim converts, and he's saying, you yourselves are trying to find Muhammad in the Torah because you are relying on a verse in the Quran that says that he's supposed to be found somewhere in the Torah. But in that particular verse, it happens to be that Muhammad is not named Muhammad, but he's called Ahmad. And therefore, you can't rely on that verse and find 92s. You're supposed to look for a gematria of Ahmad and not of Muhammad. I think it's, it's a, a, amazing to see that Maimonides was very, very familiar, not just with the general uh, ideas that these conscious were saying, but he was also familiar with the Quran. And he knew what inspired those Muslims to look for these references. And he's saying, but if you're relying on that verse in the Quran, you should look for a different name, not for Muhammad, but rather for Ahmad. We're proceeding. So we spoke about Legoi Gadol, and we spoke about Gimod Meod. And you can already see Maimonides is really trying to be as rational as possible. He's saying, let's look at the plain sense of these verses. They have nothing to do with Islam. They are really are not in any way connected to the, to the story of this religion. It's just talking about a large nation that would emerge from Ishmael, and that's all. He moves on and he's speaking about our particular verse uh, from Parashat Vezot Abracha, Hofia Mehar Paran. And look what he says here, his argument. You're continuing. His argument from the phrase, he appeared from Mount Paran is not value, valid. Appeared is past tense. Had it employed the future tense, he will appear from, from Mount Paran, the apostles might have had something to hang on to. However, the use of the past tense indicates that it is an event that has taken place. Namely, it describes the elevation at Mount Sinai. It did not descend suddenly like a thunderbolt, but it came down gently, manifesting itself gradually, first from the top of one mountain, then from another, until it came to rest on Sinai. Hence, he says, the Lord came from Sinai. He shone upon them from Seir. He appeared, on, appeared from Mount Paran. Mark well the expression upon them, i.e. Israel. So what is Maimonides saying here? Maimonides is addressing this Sinai, Seir, the Paran verse, and he's making very clear this is, has nothing to do with future Christianity or Islam. He starts by saying the whole verse is speaking about something that happened in the past, and therefore it's not a prophecy about the future. It says, Hashem Sinai Ba, in the past, Vezarach appeared uh, or shown from Seir. It also says, uh, he appeared, Ophia. So all this is in past tense. So the Torah is not prophesizing about future religions, but only talking about something that already has happened. But what's also fascinating is with Maimonides is saying, this whole event, is, this whole verse is only referring to the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The Torah did not, God did not reveal himself at one instant in one place, but rather a little bit traveled from place to place until he uh, settles at Mount Sinai. And I think it's very interesting, and this is not something I'm only referring to Ramba, but also to other Jews who lived in Islamic territories. What's fascinating is that they all assume that the verse of Sinai, Seir, and Parar are only referring to the revelation of the Torah to Am Yisrael. And why am I saying it's fascinating? Because in this case, it's very clear. Muslim didn't make up this tradition that the Torah was actually offered to numerous nations. It was actually a rabbinic tradition that Sinai, Seir, and Paran are referring to numerous nations, to uh, the Israelites, to Esav, and to Ishmael. This is not really something that Muslims came up with. It's actually Jewish tradition. But you see that Rambam, when he's approaching this verse and he understands that Muslims are taking advantage of this tradition and trying to rely on that interpretation in order to find Islam in the Torah. So Maimonides says, if that's the case, let's turn back to the basics. And the basic meaning is, that the Torah is, that the whole verse is only referring to Matan Torah to the Israelites. And this is also found in other Jews who are, again, who are interpreting this verse in Islamic territories. Rav Gaon, Ibn Ezra, they all insist the verse is only speaking about Matan Torah to the Israelites. There's nothing about Torah being offered to anybody else or to any other alternative revelations. 
they couldn't accept this midrash that we're so familiar with because it was just something that they could not accept because that they understood that would lead to this argument that the Torah is referring to not to other uh, revelations in addition to the one that was given to, to Am Yisrael. Side point. So uh, how did this tradition become so famous? So why do we keep reciting this tradition? If all these Jews in Islamic territories are trying to erase any traces of this uh, Agadah, so how did this Agadah actually survive? I think what happened is the Agadah survived in Christian territories, meaning Rashi, Ramban, all these Jews who lived in Christian lands, they were the ones who kept referring to the Agadah, the Torah being given to all these nations. Because in Christian lands, nobody could make, nobody could make any use of this Agadah. Because the Seir, Christianity is found somewhere in the middle of the verse. Nobody would, if you want to read this as, a, as referring to future revelations, you would end up with Islam, not with Christianity. So in Christian lands, Christians were not making use of this idea that this verse is about future revelations. And that's why in Christian lands, Jews were able to keep uh, referring or citing this ancient tradition from Chazan. But in Islamic lands, no more, nobody will ever mention again the idea that the Torah here is referring to numerous revelations because that's too close for what Muslims were doing with this verse. Finally, uh, what about the verse, Navi mikirbecha mikerev achecha kamoni? So here Maimonides ends by saying the words. The words, like myself, were specifically added to indicate that only the descendants of, of Jacob are meant. The phrase, from among your own people, might have been misunderstood and taken to refer also to Esau and Ishmael, since we do find Israel addressing Esau as, as brother in the verse, thus says your brother Israel. The words like myself cannot mean like me in rank and achievement, for he had indeed stated, never again did there arise in Israel prophet uh, like Moses. Okay, so here Maimonides is even more extreme. And I think what Maimonides is saying, the verse, is actually trying to exclude the possibility that there will be a future prophet from other nations. Whereas Muslims were emphasizing, saying here we're talking about a prophet like uh, from your brothers, from your from Ishmael's descendants, Ramam emphasizes no, but that's precisely why the Torah concludes with the words, Navi mikirbecha mikerev achecha kamoni, like me, trying to say no, a, pro a future prophet can only be like me in the sense he has to be of Israeli uh, origin. He cannot be from any other nation. Since one might think that the word achicha, Achiv uh, might refer to other people. The Torah specifically wanted to make clear that that's not the meaning. The word like myself only meant uh, that any future prophet could be a descendant of the Israelites and not of uh, any other nation. I'm summarizing what we saw so far, and then we'll just have one brief concluding remark. I think it becomes clear that as time goes by, Jews are more rational about the way they treat these arguments, Islamic arguments. If in earlier sources, Jews reacted in a more emotional manner, trying to say, oh, Ishmael is this bad guy that we can't, uh, we can't say anything negative, positive about him. He's in, uh, worshiping idols. He's being uh, divorced. His wife, was, his mother was divorced. All those stuff. In later times, Jews are reading the text in a more in a rational manner, but they are nevertheless saying there is no justification in finding Islam in the Torah. They're not trying to react in a very extreme uh, or to, to, to present the opposite of what Muslims were saying, but rather read the text according to its plain sense. And they're uh, trying to make a very clear point that Muslims were trying to force the verses to say things that are not really uh, found there. And in that sense, I think uh, Maimonides was very right that this Islamic attempt to find, to force the text to be speaking about Islam was actually not uh, something that could be uh, supported in the words of the Torah themselves. We have five more minutes. I want to uh, come up with one more uh, concluding remark. We saw in the previous session, previous sessions that Jews, when reading the Bible, were not operating in this you know sterile environment, but they're in constant uh, debate. Sometimes it's something that they speak about openly, and sometimes it's only hidden in their words. They're polemicizing both with Christians and with Muslims. And the question I wanna conclude with is, what was a bigger threat from a Jewish perspective? 
the way that Christians were reading the Bible or the way that Muslims were reading the Bible? Which one was something that Jews were fearing more? The Christian way of reading the Bible as allegory, as, they, as the stories are being told in the New Testament or later how they're interpreted by church fathers or by uh, the way that the stories of the Torah appear in the Quran and perhaps also later on in Islam. I'm not interested in uh, this, this. If we had another hour, we can discuss and raise all sorts of ideas, but we don't need to speculate what Jews back then felt because there's actually a beautiful tshuva response of Maimonides addressing that particular question. And I want to conclude our discussion. And I think it presents us with a very fascinating comparative view, at least from a Jew like Maimonides who lives in Islamic territories. And he's trying to tell us what he feels is a bigger threat, the Islamic or the Christian way of reading the text. I'm not gonna ask you to guess what is he gonna say. You can just guess quietly inside and, and, and see afterwards if you guessed right. Is Maimonides going to present Christianity as a bigger threat or Islamic way of reading the Bible as a greater threat? So where does that come up? In the Chuvot, in the uh, response of Maimonides, somebody asked him the following question. The guy was referring to a statement in the Talmud Bavli, Tractate Sanhedrin 59a, uh, referring to a sentence of Rabbi, the Amora Rabbi Yochanan. This is the question he asks. Is Rabbi Yochanan's statement that a Gentile who engages in Torah is liable to death, right? Is this really halacha? Meaning, do we really have to follow that on a practical level? If a boy, if a non-Jew is studying Torah, are we supposed to kill him? And if not, is every Jew obligated to refrain from teaching them, meaning non-Jews, any of the commandments except for the seven commandments of the sons of Noah, meaning Sheva Mitzvot Bnei Noach, or may he? instruct him in the commandments. So what are we supposed to do? Are we allowed to engage with non-Jews and teach them Torah with non-Jews? The, the guy who was asking the question does not make any distinction between different types of Gentiles. He's just speaking about Goyim in general. But Maimonides in his response will separate between the two. And this is what Maimonides is saying and that will be our concluding uh, text. Yes. Okay. The responsum, this is halacha without any doubt. And when the hand of Israel is powerful against them, we prevent him from any Torah study until he converts. Okay, it's so first he says, it does mean that Torah is something that leads to a death penalty. And in a theoretical world, if we were uh, able to do such a thing, perhaps we would do that. But now the crucial part comes. When he talks when about, are we allowed to teach Jews, non-Jews Torah? And this is what he says, it is permitted it is permitted to teach the commandments to Christians and to attract them to our faith, but none of this is permitted with the Ishmaelites, since their religion teaches them that this Torah is not from heaven. When they are taught anything from the scriptures and find it contradicting what they invented from their hearts because of the hodgepods of stories and confusion of matters that reach them, this will not be proof to them that they are mistaken, but rather they will explain it according to their own erring traditions and will be able to respond to us and to lead astray any convert or Jew who has no sense. And this will be a stumbling block for the Jews who are imprisoned among them for their sins. But the uncircumcised ones believe that the text of the Torah has not changed, and they just uncover new faces according to their erring understanding and interpret it according to the explanations that they are known for. If the correct interpretation is made known to them, it is possible that they will return to the truth, and even if they do not return as we wish them to return, there will be no stumbling block for us from this, and nothing in the scriptures will be found different from ours. Okay. So first, I don't know what your guess was, but you see very clearly from Maimonides' perspective, Muslims posed a greater threat than Christians. And this is despite the fact that in many other cases, Maimonides actually viewed Islam as a closer form of religion to Judaism. But when it comes to teaching Torah to non-Jews, he felt that Christians is something that we could do and not something that we could do with the Ishmaelites, with Muslims. The reason Maimonides provides is also interesting. And I think it also reveals how Maimonides was tuned to all these nuances that we were talking about in our class. When it comes to Christians, Maimonides says, we're talking about two different uh, <laughs> religions, but they actually share one text. And the, the, the gap or the difference between the way that they read the text is something very clear and uh, something that we can really put our finger on. Jews read the text literally, 
Christians read the text allegorically. Maimonides says, look, when we speak with them, we can start, we can have an argument and talk about the right method of how to read the text. Maybe we'll manage to convince them that the Torah speaks literally, not allegorically. And if we don't, we don't. When it comes to Muslims, Maimonides felt that this is really a dead end. It's not going to lead anywhere. Because in the Islamic case, Muslims didn't really read the same Torah and then come up with their interpretations. In the Quran, the stories are already being told in a different form, in a different shape. It's not really a text accompanied with a trend, with an interpretation. Muslims read the stories with, in, with the interpretation as part of that same tradition, as part of the uh, part of as if that was the text itself. Maimonides self he felt here there's really no room for conversation. If we Jews will insist that Ishmael is just the son of Abraham and they will say no, he's a prophet, there's no real, there's no room for discussion here. It's very, it's early on, it will just lead into this uh, debate, accusations, who forged the text, who has the right tradition. It's not really something that we can speak about so much. It's going to lead nowhere. And for that reason, Maimonides felt with Christians, maybe there is something good that could uh, come up out of these conversations. But with Muslims, no point. With that, we're going to end up some of uh, these ideas that we were discussing throughout the course. And I hope that we didn't cover this topic, but at least uh, presented a little bit of a sense what separated Jewish, Christian, and Islamic interpretations of the Torah. That's it. Hag Sameach. Yeah. All right. Hag Shavuot Sameach, everyone. Thank you to all, of us, all the people who joined us. Uh, there will be more learning in Drisha after after the Chagim, please keep an eye on our website and emails for updated class listings. With that, have a good day, everyone. Okay, thank you.